Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Teaching Writing in College, where the driving question is, how can instructors in higher education leverage theory, science, pedagogy, and craft most effectively to help their learners with writing? And I have to apologize. It's been a while since I've posted an episode. I recorded one a couple of weeks ago, but had a technical glitch, which I think I've resolved, and um, I just uh, never got it posted, and I'm just re-recording the episode. So uh, this episode is one that I wish had appeared a couple of weeks ago. But um, what we're going to talk about today is rocks, of course. It's another in the series, part four of the series, Writing is Made of Genres and Genres are Made of Rocks. And uh, in this particular case, I'm going to talk about how to support genres and knowledge of genres, because if learners are going to write in different genres, they need way to develop content. You know, when I think about writing, I often think about the rhetorical canon, especially things like, you know, invention, arrangement, and style. And uh, uh, those things also, I think, maybe I'll have to talk about this sometime. Uh, they're quite parallel to Mikhail Bakhtin's way of looking at genres. And so, or at least I've found them to be. So maybe I can talk through that because that also, I need to tell the story of rocks, how I came up with it. And uh, that's an important part of this too. So I'll try to get that out. I'll try to remember to look at the parallels. You know, content structure and style sounds very much like um, part of the rhetorical canon. So at any rate, if we uh, get started on the slide, um, a couple of things here that are important. So we have genres, of course. Uh, you know, I, I rehearse those with my students. I bring in samples of genres. We do a rocks analysis on them once in a while. I try to find genres that might be related to their majors or things that they see themselves doing in the future. Um, so I bring that in. Recurring occasion, what situation keeps happening that this type of writing is typically used for, uh, whatever the writing is. Content. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about stasis theory today because that is one good way to support the development of content in uh, quite a large number of genres. And so I, I also kind of see that as an as invention. And you know, uh, then there's structure and style. And so I spend a lot of time trying to find strategies for developing content structure and style in uh, the teaching that I do and the material that I bring into class. And stasis theory, I think, has been a really good one. It um, I was introduced to stasis theory when I first started teaching writing, uh, probably my second year. I was at Utah State University, and um, I started teaching as a graduate student, and they took us through the first year of teaching with, if I remember correctly, it was just we taught English 1, which was English 10-10 up there. We taught it uh, fall and spring, and then the next year um, my cohort taught uh, English 2, which was English 2010 um, in the Utah State University system. And that was you know, an English 2 course. And often I've seen this pattern uh, where, um, you know, there can be an English 1 course, which is about writing a little bit more generally. And then the English 2 version uh, tended to focus on argument a little bit more. And that's where I was introduced to stasis theory. And um, I got my start with Ramage Bean and Johnson's writing arguments. Uh, that's what was being used up there, and we all used the same thing. But then, uh, uh, so that's what I want to talk about today, because I, I still use it, but I don't use it um, 
to teach argument per se. I don't use it just to try to, you know, help students develop arguments. Um, what I tell the students it's for, you know, I still call it argument, or I might call it the stasis, you know, stasis theory or something like that. But I um, talk to them about how it's for finding ideas, and I say in this class, argument is for finding ideas, and I have them you know, put that in their notes. We keep track of all of the vocabulary of the course, all the vocabulary about writing. And so when it comes to the entry on argument, I say this has to be our definition. It's about finding ideas. And uh, we use it that way in class quite a bit. So uh, when it comes to stasis, to stasis theory, I have a lot of sources that I have drawn from over the years that have helped me learn about it. Um, Jeannie Fonestock and Marisa Kaur have a classic um go-to piece um, called Teaching Argument, A Theory of Types. And I apologize, I don't have it written here, but it's from 1983 or 1984 in the three C's, College Composition and Communication, in that journal, 1983 or 1984. And uh, they rehearse several of the components of stasis theory. And the components of stasis theory will vary a little bit depending on where you get it from. Um, Ramage, Bean, and Johnson's Allen and Bacon Guide to Writing and Writing Arguments, those have versions of stasis theory in them. Um, Andrea Lunsford and her colleagues, Everything's an Argument, Everyone's an Author. Um, especially Everything's an Argument, I remember teaching out of that one. Everything's an Author is a little bit newer, uh, but uh, Everything's an Argument had uh, also, like the Ramage, Bean, and Johnson, Lunsford and her colleagues had a, a good uh articulation of stasis theory there. Um, Ramage, Calloway, Clary Lemon, and Wagner's Argument and Composition, uh, that's available through the uh, Watt Clearinghouse and Parlor Press, um, and it uh, kind of explains stasis theory in some detail, which uh, also is a good read. Rhetoric, uh, Ramage's Rhetoric, A User's Guide, um, is another one. And there, then there are many others. Uh, I, I find stasis theory in textbooks all the time. Um, there's one called How to Write Anything by Ruskowitz, Ruskowitz and uh, Dolmage, and I haven't used that one, but in preparation for this podcast, I went back and looked at it just to ask myself, you know, is there something a little bit more I can learn about stasis theory? And uh, I did actually learn something. So uh, Jeannie Fonestock and Marisa Kaur have a list of different kinds of cause and effect. You know, uh, cause and effect, it's really important to think about cause and effect in terms of multiple causes or effects. And they had a vocabulary for explaining, you know, there are going to be lots of causes and effects and there are different kinds of them. So there are necessary causes and sufficient causes or contributing causes and precipitating causes and so on. So they've got that vocabulary. And uh, I also saw that vocabulary in the Ramage, Bean and Johnson's uh, writing arguments. It's in there. But then also in the Ruskowitz and Dolmage, How to Write Anything, they had an additional um, uh, type of cause there uh, that was not in some of the previous lists I had seen. It was called reciprocal causes, and uh, had a brief explanation of that. And so, um, you know, it's uh, used in a lot of textbooks, has been historically. And uh, I know um, we don't necessarily need to make a writing course an argument course, and it doesn't need to be about, you know, kind of the logic of argument or something like that. But stasis theory is still really useful, and uh, it helps students understand, I think, how to how to do things, how to develop ideas, and sometimes even just how to read some. You know, I, I talk to them about how 
you know, peer-reviewed research is often uh, required in papers that they might write in other courses, and it's something that college professors tend to privilege. And a lot of peer-reviewed research in many, many disciplines is uh, based in cause and effect. You know, they're trying to study cause and effect in some way, and then they might use inductive reasoning to do that. So uh, they'll use some induction by observing some examples and then uh, coming to general conclusions. And one that I give them that uh, is a little bit more recent is one of the studies of the Pfizer vaccine, one of the early studies, like in, I think, late 2020, or was it? Yeah, it must have been late 2020 of the Pfizer vaccine in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And so that's one example I use just to kind of show them how it works. And, you know, there were 44,000 participants and they divided them into two groups. Uh, they had the control group and the experimental group. So they had two, about 22,000 of each in there. And then they gave half of them a placebo, the the control group, and then the experimental group got the vaccine. And I think they got the two doses of it. So it goes through and describes that. But that was inductive. So they uh, uh, gave the vaccine. They observed what was happening in both groups and came to some general conclusions about the effectiveness of the vaccine there. And so that can be applied. To, you know, I see it in, in lots of other places, you know, like in uh, psychology or um uh, sociology, probably. There are lots of examples I've seen over the years of uh, stasis theory in action, cause and effect in action, and knowing about that, knowing about cause and effect, knowing about inductive reasoning as a way to discuss cause and effect and to find answers about cause and effect, I think is really helpful for students. And so that's one of the reasons why I like to use stasis theory. And then I have them go find ones in their own disciplines. You know, they can go find peer reviewed research often if there are. Uh, some numbers involved, and it's about cause and effect. It was probably uh, some kind of research that was conducted inductively, and they don't necessarily need to know the details about the research methods and things because that can get confusing too, and there are lots of them out there. Hard to keep track of them all, especially um, at the undergraduate level. But just kind of knowing uh, the basic logic or the basic thinking process behind the research can be really helpful for students. And so I like to bring stasis theory in for that reason as well. And so here, um, a particular skill that I've worked on with students is causal chains. It's another one that uh, a lot of folks who have written about stasis theory talk about. And I see them all over the place. I see them in, uh, you know, um, presidential debates. I remember seeing uh, one uh I noticed, uh, you know, between uh, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney uh, about 12 years ago or so. I th it must have been 2012. And I just remember seeing it in there when they were having their debate talking about taxes or something. And then, uh, you know, I've seen it in articles about video games, um, in environmental science, in lots and lots of places. It's really easy to find examples of causal chains uh, to bring in for students. Um Here's a cartoon I like to use sometimes as well. Um, I try to use this cartoon. This is Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where uh, Calvin is uh, supposed to write an argument, but uh, he can't think of anything to say. And so I like to use that as a way in to introduce argument or to remind students that argument is about finding ideas first. And so that's really important. Uh, for those of you who are listening and not watching, 
I'll just read it. Calvin says, I need some help with my homework, Hobbes. Hobbes says, what's the assignment? Calvin, I'm supposed to write a paper that presents both sides of an issue and then defends one of the arguments. Hobbes, what's your issue? That's the problem. I can't think of anything to argue, says Calvin. Hobbes, that's hard to believe. Calvin, I'm always right and everybody else is always wrong. What's to argue about? And so I just really like that. It's uh, uh, kind of light, but it just talks about how or it addresses that issue, you know, about uh, argument. But the, I think the important part here is that uh, Calvin can't think of anything to argue. And so that's one thing that I think is really helpful for students is just understanding argument in that way. It's for helping writers to find ideas. So another thing I do in class often is I might have students review the arguments uh, types. Uh, that's what I call them in class instead of stasis theory argument types and just have them uh, uh, try to remember them as best they can and then uh, we talk about what they are. And then um, for uh, cause and effect, uh, one strategy is to create a causal chain. So on my next slide I just introduce how I'm going to provide them with a couple of examples. I've got one from a grant writing textbook by Michelonis, Betzinger, and Kempf. Uh, some of you may know that textbook. And then the, another one is from the American Society for Nutrition. Uh, they had a press release, and there is a causal chain in there. And my particular audience for this um, activity is uh, students in STEM courses taking a first-year writing course that we have here at GCU for STEM majors. It's called English 107, and it's the second of two that uh, the uh, STEM majors take. And so this one about nutrition, I think uh, uh, sometimes they'll, you know, relate to that, and it's good to just show them, you know, this happens in the real world. And uh, uh, so the science-y world that they are looking forward to is, uh, you know, drawing a tie to that, I think, is important for them. So here's the one from uh, the uh, sample from the uh, grant writing textbook. And it's uh, the title is Preventing Child Abuse in the Twin Cities, uh, the Hispanic Community. Uh, that's the title of this, you know, and there's are some sample pieces of draft material for a particular grant that uh, these authors are using just to demonstrate how it works. But they put a causal chain in there. And so they've got a causal chain um, in a paragraph. And what I did in this uh, slide is I took their causal chain from their paragraph and I turned it into uh, a set of bullet points. And I could probably make it look a little bit better here. It's kind of hard to follow because my the bullets that I'm using are little V's. I was trying to use them to kind of point to how it's a chain and it goes down uh, one link at a time. But um, So I just kind of uh, sort of extracted the causal chain from the paragraph just to show students how that works. And I read that to them. And then um, I give them another example, this one from the uh, one about nutrition science. And this one is about eating highly processed carbohydrates. I read this to them. And so um, I'll just maybe read this to you as well. It's on the screen here. Um, when we eat highly processed, this, this is the second paragraph I'm looking at. 
And you'll hear the chain in this, the causal chain, getting from cause to effect. When we eat highly processed carbohydrates, the body increases insulin secretion and suppresses glucogen secretion. This in turn signals fat cells to store more calories, leaving fewer calories available to fuel muscles and other metabolically active tissues. The brain perceives that the body isn't getting enough energy, which in turn leads to feelings of hunger. In addition, metabolism may slow down in the body's attempt to conserve fuel. Thus, we tend to remain hungry even as we continue to gain excess fat. And so there is, uh, you can see the links in the chain. I read that to them. And then on the next slide, I give them an opportunity to uh, pull the causal chain out, just like I did with the grant proposal example. I have them do the same thing now with the nutrition one. And so I put a little visual aid on there, um, a little uh, advanced organizer just to help them see cause and effect and say, okay, what's the cause? Fill that in. What's the effect? Fill that in. And then also fill in the links uh, to the chain. And so uh, being able to just give them an opportunity to see that and pull it out of there, just a little bit of practice, help them get more familiar and more comfortable with cause and effect arguments um, there. And so what I'm doing really is I'm giving them away if they are working on something like my class is working on a blog that's a uh, uh, an assignment in the course, cause and effect chains could be a way to talk about some of the things that they want to talk about and so or explain, you know, especially since it's a, a course for uh, STEM majors. And this is helpful for anybody, not just STEM majors, but just the ability to take some sort of process and break it down into smaller components and share that with the audience. Uh, cause and effect chains can be a really good way to help do that. And so, you know, getting some practice with it is important. And that's what's happening here. And then the next thing I do after that is we go back to the blog. And what I'm doing in the blog is I'm having them uh, work on some sort of ethical issue in their field, you know, finding some sort of uh, ethical issue and then uh, blogging about that, a blog entry about that. And so I've also gone through a bunch of different strategies for ethical arguments as well, because those are part of stasis theory, um, especially in the uh, Ramage, Bean, and Johnson model. And so uh, in the Ramage, Bean, and Johnson model, they use principles and consequences as strategies for developing an ethical argument. And then there's another one from uh, Velasquez, which I got, now that I think about it, I realize I don't have my uh, the exact citation here, but uh, technical communication uh, by Mike Markell, and um, I have to apologize. Right at the top of my head, I can't remember the other author, but I was using that textbook uh, uh, some years back, and uh, we also uh, used it in one of our courses here, and I remember learning about a framework for business ethics, which was about rights, justice, utility, and care, which I also have here on the screen. You know, I had uh, given that to my class uh, to use as well to develop uh, material for an ethical uh, issue that they are writing about. And uh, I have consequences on the screen and utility on the screen underlined because both of those are very similar in the descriptions. You know, it's um, about uh, what the causes and effects are of some sort of action. And if they're good causes or, or good effects, then it, uh, maybe it's ethical. And if they're not so good, maybe it's not ethical. And so uh, those might be places if they're talking about that where they could use a causal chain. So I'm just reminding them that of that there. And then uh, in this flash feedback, what they're doing is they are in groups and they are 
talking to each other about what their topics are and getting feedback from their group, just some brainstorming ideas about a, a cause and effect chain that they might be able to use in their larger assignment. And so it's just a little bit of an invention activity where they get to hear from each other a little bit and put their heads together uh, to come up with some ideas. And then uh, the hub is the person who is uh, leading the discussion in the group. And in this particular kind of exercise that I like to call flash feedback, after the hub shares theirs and gets some feedback from the group, uh, they temporarily choose a different hub and start again. So everybody gets to go around kind of in a round-robin fashion. And um, I just use the word hub to kind of help uh, delineate some of the roles that students are playing on a given day in the class. But then they choose, so they choose a new hub and start again. So everybody gets a chance to uh, share what they are writing about and then get help from the group on finding a causal chain. And so it um, uh, looks like that's what I have for uh, this particular one. And once again, just a way to support different kinds of writing. Um, uh, that's what I've been using stasis theory for. And one thing that I think I'd like to also mention about this is that, you know, one thing I'm trying to do in here is I'm also trying to help them think expansively about causal chains. You know, the brain will just take material that we learn and it will connect it to the context where we learned it, which is, you know, one of the basic problems of learning transfer. And so, you know, the idea, the challenge is how do you take the learning that is happening inside the classroom and get students to apply it outside the classroom. And so uh, being able to show them outside examples, I think, is one way to do that. I try to do that as much as I can. I get a lot of these samples, you know, like this one here about the nutrition and the highly processed carbohydrates. Uh, that probably came across my phone, you know, on my social media feeds. Um, I'm always getting stuff like that, partly because I'm interested in it for myself and uh, partly because I like to uh, save the examples and bring them into class uh, when I find them. And so uh, it uh, gives students a tie between what they're learning here and uh, what they're doing in the real world or what, what's happening in the real world, I guess, and what they envision themselves doing. Um, I did another causal chain a few days ago with them where I asked them to imagine that they are, you know, working as a professional in whatever, you know, their major course of study is. And so in this English 107 class, I have... Um, people who want to be physical therapists or environmental scientists or engineers and uh, a number of others, uh, computer scientists or IT professionals and things like that. And so uh, one thing I asked them to do is to work with each other a little bit and have, uh, you know, find a cause and effect relationship in their discipline that they could explain to somebody who might not know as much as they do about it to explain that kind of a cause and effect process. And so uh, they came up with some causal chains about that. And then they practiced talking to each other about uh, the cause and effect chain. They practiced explaining it a little bit because I've had that happen to me. You know, when I've uh, uh, gone to the doctor, you know, I've noticed sometimes they will do that. And, uh, it happens in, in lots and lots of places. So um, I think that uh, can support their use of genres, but then also it can, you know, act activities like this can help learners think expansively about what they are learning. And by that, I mean uh, what uh, Randy Engel was talking about. There's a, I, th I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, um, in her research uh, with some of her colleagues, 
Uh, she talks about how we can either frame things in a bounded way, which means just within the classroom, how do you uh, do well on this assignment in this class, or how do you do well in this class, or what do you need to know for this class? That's a bounded way of thinking of, of uh, material because it, it binds it to the class. It uh, puts parameters around it. This is just for this class. But if we start to do things like show them examples or uh, relate the material to what's going on in the real world or ask them to apply it in the real world. I also like to have students bring stuff in from their other classes or from other areas of their lives because some of them have jobs and things like that and we analyze that and say, okay, where are these skills being used outside of class? That's called expansive framing and that's how we want to frame the material for the course. We want to frame it as in, okay, you're learning this now here. How can you adapt that to what's going on out uh, either in the future or even in the present. How can you adapt it right now to something else you're doing? And uh, let's work on that. So I like to try to keep it expansive as much as I can as well. So thank you once again for watching and listening. I apologize that it's been a little while since I've been uh, doing the podcast. Um, hopefully the recording on this one is going well and I'll be able to post it. I checked the equipment a little while ago today and it uh, all seemed to check out. And I've also been working on an encyclopedia. Some of you may know about an encyclopedia of terms uh, about teaching writing. Not terms about writing, but about teaching writing uh, that I've gathered. I'm a co-editor with um, uh, Mona Alcotti, Allison Ellsworth, and Dwayne Rowan on this uh, uh, encyclopedia. And uh, we're compiling the manuscript and of course, that's a laborious process, and it's a good one. I love working on it, but it also has kept me from doing more with the podcast. So I'll try to get to the podcast more as I can. And thank you once again so much for watching and listening. And I look forward to uh, posting another one uh, within the next week or two. Thanks so much. <laughs>